Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Lakeland. This has been our church since like 2001. And my name is Tim Barr and this is my family, Zandy, and we're happy to be joined by two of our, our two sons from college. This is George and Henry. So we are lighting the Advent candle this morning. It's the candle of love. It's the last purple candle. It's the last of the colored candles. And um, it's a special day for us because we have our boys home. So Advent for Tim and me, before we came to Lakeland, we had the wreath, but we didn't really know what to do with it. That's right. So um, we feel very blessed that here at Lakeland, um, Jim Leahy brought his kids up with it. And... uh, it's been passed on throughout right. our church. So we went from the stages where we had wiggly kids that couldn't stay in their seat and poking and bothering each other um, to now uh, grown-up boys that when they come home, it's just a joy to have them in our house. So it's, it's a, it, um, so one of them is going to light the candle of love. Are you guys going to fight over it today? <laughs> Henry. Henry's going to light the candle of love. All right, well, thank you, everybody, and happy holidays to everybody. So I'm Zandy Barr, and this is my story. Last spring, I was flattered that Rachel Hartwig chose me to be her mentor. I was also nervous about how it would go. We had a curriculum provided by the Milestone Ministry, and we met once a week for six weeks. So Rachel and I um, started with open hearts and expectations, and God showed up with us each week. I think the description of the journey milestone makes it sound like the older mentor will pour into the younger one, but my experience was more of a back and forth, more like a teeter-totter than a waterfall. The purpose of a mentor is to help you grow as a person and become a better or different version of yourself to help you stretch and learn. And that's what Rachel did for me. She helped me become a better version of myself. She helped me to look back and remember the lessons of my past and look forward to see new ways to be used by God, new ways to use my training and talents and treasure to make the most of my days. Rachel's at the beginning of her adult life, and I am in the middle, or the late middle, (laughs) I might be 55. (laughs) So it's a beautiful experience to consider life from her perspective, to see opportunities for growth and change, for doing things a new and different way. So we shared life experiences and listened to and encouraged each other and challenged each other and more. And for me, it was a spiritual jumpstart. As I was encouraging Rachel to examine her priorities, goals, and dreams, I spent time in prayer and meditation thinking about those things for myself. As I encouraged her to seek God's wisdom, I sought that for myself also. And sometimes the best way to learn something new is to teach it to someone else. Most weeks it felt like Rachel and I were teaching each other. Each week I got a nudge moving me closer to Rachel and to God. And by the end, I felt more than flattered that Rachel chose me as her mentor. I felt privileged and grateful because as so often happens when I'm open to trying something new with God and others, he does more than I could ask or imagine. Spending this time with Rachel and getting to know this amazing young woman that she is, um, she definitely gave me more than I asked or imagined. 
And I'm Sandy Barr, and that's my story. My name is Rachel Hartwig, and this is my story. I've known Zandy for three years through my mom. I'd remember when my parents went out to dinner with all the other church parents, they'd come back with all these ridiculous ideas that kids should read a book called Dateable before they got into relationships, or that parents should have a contract with their kid, like through their cell phone, stuff like that. Turns out Zandy was the person that gave those ideas to my parents. <laughs> When it came time to choose a mentor for the journey, I, I told my mom that I wanted someone a little more experienced with their life. I said I wanted someone like my mom, but not like my mom. So then my mom suggested Zandy. Mentoring with Zandy was an amazing experience. I was going through a very hard time because I was part of a high-stress culinary team that made it to nationals. Through that experience, my spirit was tested, and I think Zandy was a big part of the reason why I got through it. I remember she would give me scriptures to read throughout my day, and she would pray over me, and she would give me such great advice every time I talked to her. I always felt spiritually rejuvenated after my sessions with her. As I reflect over this past year, I've recognized that it's been the first year where I've actually pursued God myself instead of just listening to my parents and believing what they believed. I felt my own personal faith grow, and thanks to Zandi, it's been a beautiful experience. It feels really good to know that there are other adults in the church helping me to know God. I'm very grateful for Zandy. Well, super cool. Uh, very good. There are mentoring relationships that go on around the church, um, usually thanks to Pastor Marta uh, Gillen, who got all that going, so I believe. So it's um, been a very valuable thing for those who can enter into that um, relationship, so very, very good. Um, well, <clears throat> here we are, everyone. We are in the, uh, we're in the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, Christmas is upon us, and Christmas Eve will be coming this Saturday evening, so I hope you're making plans to uh, show up at um, at the two services we have, either 4 o'clock or 5.30. It ought to be a very uh, meaningful and powerful uh, spiritual time for us all. So uh, they'll talk about that in announcements. So here we are on this fourth Sunday, and we turn right to the birth narrative out of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible, bring it up on your phone or use your, uh, your Bible that you brought with you. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and the first seven verses, just the first section of it. And this is very familiar and famous, um, you know, if you ever watch the Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown and Linus gets up and does this, and it's all really nice. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, Roman Empire, should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, up north, to Judea, down south, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place in the guest room. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, this week, uh, you know, our house is all decorated for Christmas, probably like yours is too. And uh, in our half bath in the hallway is a, Lori put out a little uh, precious moments nativity scene, like a little bitty precious moments. And I was making fun of it. I, I've made fun of precious moments my entire life. It just, there's just something about those little wise men with a baby head and big sad eyes and a flashlight for a star. The, the whole thing just so bankrupt. It's just, it just does not work for me, you know, kind of irpy about it. So, um, so I, I prefer really a more realistic nativity scene, you know, realistic lowing cattle. Give me the lowing cattle, you know, and smelly shepherds. I'm cool. And, you know, and this exhausted, when I picture it, I picture this exhausted young woman with stringy sweat hair who just gave birth to her first child, you know, and Luke's telling you the story. He doesn't really say any of that sort of colorization to the whole thing. He's just real matter of fact about the whole thing because he's trying to get on with the story. And he's just real matter of fact. He's just like, he's like, uh, let's see. He just kind of goes through the whole deal. He's like, Luke says, there was a Roman census. Report to your hometown. Uh, take a donkey journey, even if you are pregnant. Um, and the manger's food trough is going to be your crib because there's no room. Got it? Okay, got it. So that's what he does right there in what we just read. So I doubt the real story is, um, was overflowing, though. I doubt that really at the, in the moment that Joseph and Mary, shepherds, I, I doubt that anybody was deep in thought about like what's really going on and the big significance of the thing. I think they were just simply trying to survive and get through the, the day. You know what I mean? Uh, so there wasn't a lot of insight to the whole thing. They were just going through a story at that moment. You know, because if you think about it... Uh, it was probably extremely hard. This, if you think about it, especially if you're Mary. I mean, picture yourself as Mary, which is hard for all the guys in the room, of course, but for all you moms in the room, it's pretty easy. You're, you're very pregnant. I mean, very pregnant. So now you're going to take a donkey ride, which actually we don't really know if she took a donkey ride. They, it's just assumed that she is. It's a 75-mile journey while you're at the end of your pregnancy riding a donkey. Have you ever ridden a donkey? I have ridden a donkey, and I think by the time I got through with it for a few minutes... I think I was ready to give birth. So, you know, donkey's not all that fun of a ride. I don't think the donkey really wants you on there. It's not very good. So after hours of riding a donkey, you know, are you joyous? I, I don't think so. You know, you're not this deep thought and beatific and certainly no precious moments thing going on. Um, so, and then think if you're Joseph, right? He's along for this thing. Your fiance, not your wife, your fiance... Your fiance is obviously very pregnant, which I'm sure the donkey ride did not help. You're out of wedlock, and she's pregnant. Everybody tracking here, right? Not by you, okay? And you're going to Bethlehem to your hometown. There's nothing better than bringing your fiance, who's pregnant by somebody else, to meet the relatives. <laughs> this is going to go so well, right? So um, they get there, and there's no room. Yeah, you got that right. They're not letting her in the house, you know. So they go to the stable, and there you have it, the food trough, the, the manger in the food trough is where they lay the baby Jesus. All this time is 
is this thought that Joseph is bringing this, this girl who's disgraced the family name, and he's disgraced the family name by taking up with what would just be considered at that time. She's just a harlot. Okay, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus' difficult, painful, scary story doesn't even end with the Bethlehem journey. Luke just dives right into it as you keep reading the gospel there. And sure enough, as Jesus begins to grow up and gets within about a year or so of the whole thing, they got to take off for Egypt to escape Herod, King Herod, who's killing all the firstborn males in the city of Bethlehem, right? So the whole thing just gets worse and worse and worse. It doesn't let up. Now, we'll never know, but perhaps years later, Mary and Joseph could retell the story, and there might be a chuckle here and there. Like, remember that time we rode the donkey while really, really pregnant? She's going to go, I don't think so. That's not very funny at all. So, you know... But there could be something. They could shed a tear, you know, a tear of joy maybe, um, or at least like, wow, that was something. I can't believe we did that. I can't believe we got through that. I can't believe we all didn't die. I, you know, whatever. And no telling what they said and thought about that years later. And there's this feeling, this sudden rush then, as you retell these old stories, right? Think about yourself. You retell these old stories, these family stories, and there's this rush of like, that was so unbelievable. That was so deep. That was so meaningful, you know? I, here's my favorite um, stained glass rosette of a uh, photo uh, that we have here of this uh, rosette. This, um, I think we have it on the screen. This one, I found it years ago. We've used it around here. I like this one. It's my favorite Madonna and Child, Mary and Jesus, because I like it because she looks thoughtful and content. She's not necessarily smiling, right? And Jesus isn't either. And um, I like it because, and this is modern, by the way. This isn't ancient, so someone's done this recently. Um, it's like they, you can tell they've been through something together, and it was difficult. Something means more than what just meets the eye. They're on the other side of the story. And their faces have this deep, quiet joy, just barely, you can tell there was something difficult, and it turned out better than it should have or could have. That's what I read when I look at it. And I kind of like that. There's a depth to it. It's not some cheesy sort of thing where Jesus looks like some little man. He's always got his hands held up, you know, doing the right thing. And everybody looks like, yay, it all worked out. You know, there's just something realistic to it. Because and I like it because life is like that. Life is like that, isn't it? Don't you have to travel through the valley of death? Don't you have to travel through the valley of death to come out on the other side with joy and happiness and peace and love? Isn't life, in a sense, have a huge valley of death, this sort of roughness to it, near, near, near misses over and over and over? 16th century Spanish Christian mystic, John of the Cross. If you go on retreat with me and stuff, we run into this sort of thing, John of the Cross. And he quotes the Apostle Paul, who said, In Christ are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul writes. And then John of the Cross comes in and says, But, but in all of these, these hidden treasures and wisdom and knowledge of God, but, John says, the soul cannot enter these treasures nor attain them unless it first crosses into the thicket of suffering. Ain't it the truth? 
You don't get to the treasures until you've gone through the thicket of suffering, John of the Cross said back in the 16th century. All the treasures of Jesus await us, but to get there, you've got to go through some suffering. You've got to take this journey, you know, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, riding on a donkey. Anyone who tells you the Christian life is problem-free has never really experienced a real relationship with God or really lived much or gone through anything, really. It's just not honest. Just consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials and suffering, James says. Because on the backside of suffering comes a joy if we endure, if we, if we endure, if we can make it through, if we can see a larger story. I got another picture here for you up on the screen. The Wilburn family has a disaster story. And it's th- this, this picture is telling. We call our disaster story the, the Wilburn family fall. It's the family fall story. And we were in the mountains way, way back when, outside Basalt, Colorado, and uh, camping up at Rudy Reservoir in the fall. And we went for a little family hike, right? And we stopped to take this picture, uh, our family picture, right? Got everybody there. This is back in the day when you actually, there was this thing called a camera that you had to go set on a rock, and then you pushed a timer thingy, and, and it was, and anyway, it was a weird thing. So, um, so we did that. And then a few moments later, a few minutes later, after we got up and we took the picture and we started walking, I mean, we look really happy and peaceful here, right? And it started to drizzle as soon as the photo was done. And we're up in the mountains and it's pretty cold. And we start heading back towards camp because it's going to start raining. And we found ourselves looking over the creek by the campsite, about 15 feet down, and we were going to try and figure out how to get around this and get back, because we didn't get, go back the way we came, about how we're going to get around the creek. But we wanted to get a look at things, so I'm holding on to Hudson's hand, and I step up onto this big, wet boulder that's tilted at about 30 degrees down toward the creek. You're going, uh-oh. And as Hudson and I stepped on the boulder, which is about the size of half this platform, and as we stepped on the boulder, it was this instantaneous fall. Like, I don't think I've ever stepped on anything so slick. It was, it was amazing. It didn't look slick, but it was just, there was nothing good to grip it. And it, instantly, I slide down the boulder, holding on to Hudson, because he's sliding too. We go flipping around, and Lori, instinct, instinctively being a mom, grabs towards Hudson, think he's going to fall off the rock, she didn't care about me, and <laughs> grab toward Hudson while holding on to Mia, and all of us are sliding down the rock with me at the bottom of the pile, right, with my head hanging off the boulder 15 feet down to the creek, and I was stopped by a twig about the size of my finger that had been growing up in a branch from a tree, and that's what was holding the whole family, Okay. <laughs> And of course, at this point, you know, well, Lori was, uh, she tore her favorite jeans. That's the only thing she really cared about, I guess, that and the children. And Hudson was, I think he was bloodied up. We fight about whether or not who was bleeding the most. Um, Mia was disgusted with the whole thing, and she was crying in shock. And Lori carefully pulled the children to safety, and that was the end of it, and I died. So, no. um, And... 
you know, with all of our scratch and bruises, and I messed up my neck really bad, which I worked on for months with a chiropractor, and we all sniffled and walked back in the cold rain by now back to the campsite. It was a catastrophe. And we have, a, this picture is in our hallway, and every time I look at it, I think, oh, just wait. <laughs> just wait. It's not going to go well here at all in just a few moments. So uh, hereafter known as the family fall. So I know that each of us here have stories just like this, and I imagine if we, you know, when we break service and you could go out here in the lobby and we'd all sit around and say, oh, yeah, I got one like that, you know, you try to do the one-up thing, and um, a story like our family fall. J.R.R. Tolkien of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit called this thicket of suffering, he called it a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe is the happy ending every story must have in order to be a good story. This is how he defined a story. It has to have this valley of death and then end up on the other side. The eucatastrophe. Eu, E-U in Greek, of course, means good, right? Um, and we all know what catastrophe means. So this is the good part, the good ending to the catastrophe. Tolkien says that all of us live in a eucatastrophe. It's the great smiley face of life. You go down and you come up. You start out high, you go through the catastrophes of life, and hopefully you come out at a high point again, hopefully. Tolkien states that the Christmas story is the eucatastrophe of humanity. The entire Christmas story is a eucatastrophe. It's the one that symbolizes it all. It starts off in the whole Bible. It starts off in the Garden of Eden. Then we fall into shadow and wander in the desert, worshiping idols of wood and other things and stone. Then we forget some things that should have never been forgotten, who we belong to, what supreme story that we actually are in, the God story. And then we wander as slaves and lost children of God, and we come out in God's own eucatastrophe, Tolkien says, a story that finds God in the universe lying in a feed trough born to a peasant girl out of wedlock. And then Tolkien says, but the Easter story, the Easter resurrection, is the eucatastrophe of Jesus. Just when all is lost, Jesus dies on a cross, and it seems like it's really lost at that point. And he's lying to Cain in a silent, dark tomb. And he arises to a new kind of life that none of us can even imagine. And our story, everyone, gets back on track. And that's the joy of the world. I tell you all this, brothers and sisters, because this is the answer to those of us who have endured unimaginable loss and suffering in life, which is far more common than any of us can ever imagine. Some of you have lost a child. Some of you now lost both your parents. And it's just you. Some have life-altering illness and conditions. Some have lost relationships that will never come back. Some of you don't have much money for a Merry Christmas. And some have to fight depression and mental illness and just, just deep, deeply, deeply alone. All these stories may not end up with a happy ever after ending, 
but every single one of these catastrophes makes us who we are. You belong to the story. It's where you are. And it is your story and you have to own it. And it's God's grand story for your life. It's the you catastrophe of you. Mary and Joseph didn't know how the first Christmas was going to end up. Catastrophe or you catastrophe? They had no concept of that sort of thing. And no one knows how your story is going to end up as well. How will our story end up? My experience says that our stories usually end up in joy and happiness. I remember, remember, I remember years and years ago, a man came to me, and the marriage was a disaster. And he was going to take his son and escape with him to China and never come back. And then five, six years later, joy, remarried, everything's worked out, family is at some sort of status quo, and life turned out better. You just don't know how the story's going to end up. The story of Jesus ends up with the Easter resurrection. This is our resurrection as well. The very best stories always end up in hope and joy. And then you still may walk with a limp. You still may walk with a limp the rest of your life. Here's a catastrophe story of mine that I love at this time of year, every year. It's at this time of year that I perform one of my most sacred traditions. Late on the night before Christmas, late at night on Christmas Eve, I watched the old black and white 1951 Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It's called Scrooge. It's, critics say it is the very best Christmas Carol movie to watch. If you're going to watch one, you watch this one. I love Dickens' short little Christmas ghost story, which is really what it was. It was a ghost story. Because I first remembered uh, one of the very, very first Christmas Eve services at Lakeland. It might have been the very first Christmas Eve service, but I think it maybe it was the second. It was a cold, snowy Christmas Eve, and Lakeland was meeting above a restaurant in a banquet hall. Of course, the restaurant was closed. There was no one around. The parking lot was empty. And those days, we hauled in a large trailer, right, everything, because we were portable. And it went up to a second floor through an elevator or up the stairs. Everything. Stage. We carried a stage. We, we carried lights. We carried amplifiers. We carried speakers. We carried screens. We carried projectors. We carried... Everything was carried. All of the children's ministry toys and equipment were all carried upstairs, including dividing walls that folded up magically. It took a lot of work and a lot of people. But it was Christmas Eve. And in those days, everyone was more young than old. <laughs> and what had to happen is they all had to get to their parents for dinner, you know, for the family thing. And so there was only a handful of us that could actually put all the stuff away that was dragged out. Everybody was like, hey, man, I got to go. Like, okay, see ya. And it was kind of going like that. And so down the elevator, everything went, and out to the trailer, and it was all sitting out there in the ice and the snow, and we're packing it away. And at the very end, I think, if my memory serves me right, I think it was Chris and my wife, Laurie, and me. And everybody else had gone to their parents. 
And we stood out back at the restaurant, and we closed the trailer door. And it was cold. I mean, it was down in the 20s. And we said, well, Merry Christmas. And each, and we left. And it was finally me, because Lori and I always drove different, separate. And I, I walked to my car. And that night, I went home, and I watched the old black and white Scrooge movie, which I don't think I'd ever done. And I've been watching it every Christmas Eve since. You know, like, well, what's the big deal? Like, Dickens' old story tells me that that dark alley that night behind a restaurant, there is a Christmas morning, and that it all matters. That there is a catastrophe and a catastrophe. Not that doing church was a catastrophe. And I watched the show because Scrooge changes in the movie. And people change. And we change. The world changed because of Jesus. And there is hope and peace and joy and love in, in, in the world because of one single silent night when Christ was born. That is the story of us all. You catastrophe, everyone. Through the thicket of suffering to the joyous you catastrophe, the good disaster. And that can be your story, and I think it will be your story for almost all of us. Amen.